Now, the last book of the Old Testament tonight, and uh, it did seem quite logical, I admit, that next week we should begin with the New Testament. But there are 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I don't want to pass over them in silence. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think there's too little known about this very fascinating interesting period of history, which is uh, not covered by any uh, of the scriptures. Four hundred silent years that lie between the close of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament. We come to that closing book tonight, the book of Malachi, and the next book in our Bible is the Gospel according to Matthew. And these two books tie together in a very remarkable way, as we'll see as we go into this book of Malachi tonight. But uh, historically, there was a long, long time in between. For 400 years, there was no voice that spoke for God. No prophet came to Israel. There were were no uh, written scriptures being produced. There was no encouragement from the from God. There were silent heavens. History was going on. People were living. Remarkable things were taking place in in Israel and among the Jews. New institutions were being formed that find their, uh, that appear in the opening of the New Testament. But uh, none of this is recorded for us in the sacred history. But we will take this up. I want to cover this period in the 400 silent years on next Sunday evening. Now the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the last of the minor prophets and the last prophetic voice to speak to Israel. You recall that the last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, were all written after the return of the Israelites from their captivity in Babylon. Now the people didn't come back from Babylon all in one great big happy throng. There was a straggling return uh, in two or three groups. And the first one began about 535 B.C. when uh, a a handful of, of Jews fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that the captivity would last for 70 years and came back to the desolated, stricken city of Jerusalem. And there they began to lay the foundations of the temple. And it was Haggai's ministry, you remember, 15 years later, that stirred them up to continue that work and to carry it through. And under the, uh, during the time of the ministry of Zechariah, the temple was completed. And after the temple was built, Ezra the priest led another group back from Babylon. The people had changed their entire way of life by that time. Uh, while they were in Israel before the captivity, they were sheep keepers by and large. But in Babylon, they learned to become shopkeepers. And that's where the great uh, mercantile industries among the Jews began, the Emporium and Macy's and Gimbel's and other (laughs) stores like that. And they've been merchants, shopkeepers ever since. And that all began in Babylon. And then uh, Ezra led this group back. And uh, again, they had difficulties, which are recorded in the historical books of it, book of Ezra. And finally, the last return was accomplished under Nehemiah, who in 400, 
45 B.C., led a group back to begin the laying of the walls of Babylon. And there is no more fascinating book in the Old Testament than the book of Nehemiah that records the the exciting uh, experience of this man of building once again the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it was shortly after Nehemiah finished this task that Malachi appears. So he is the last prophet historically. And it's interesting to compare the book of Nehemiah and the book of Malachi. One is the conclusion of the historical section of the Old Testament. You have that beginning with Genesis and running right through to Nehemiah. That's all history. Then begins the Psalms, Job and the Psalms, and the, and the poetic books followed by the prophetic. And we come again to the same period in, uh, in Malachi that is covered by Nehemiah. Perhaps that will help you in understanding the Old Testament. This uh, prophecy was given by a man whose name means my messenger. And it's uh, most suggestive that this last book of our Old Testament is, uh, uh, is built around the theme of a message from the messenger of God and a prediction of the coming of another messenger. And therefore, you have a, a direct tie between this book and uh, the New Testament. You'll notice that chapter 3, for instance, to plunge right into the middle of the book, begins with this prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger. And in Hebrew, that would be, behold, I send Malachi to prepare the way before me. Because Malachi means my messenger. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And as you turn to the book of Matthew, you discover that that messenger was John the Baptist that he came to prepare the way of the Lord and to announce the coming of a second messenger from God. And that messenger is here in this prophecy too, in the next verse, or the next sentence. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. And you remember it was the... It was the uh, work of the Lord Jesus on the closing night of his ministry to take wine and bread with his disciples and holding the cup up to say this blood, this cup is the, is the blood of the new covenant. The messenger of the covenant is the Lord Jesus himself. In whom you delight, says the Lord, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That is, he burns and he cleanses. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of a silver. And he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Now that was the trouble with the people in Malachi's day. They'd forgotten the great and central message of God. And the prophet opens with that note. He says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. And that's always the message of God's prophets. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the amazing thing is that these people answer the prophet with the words, how have you loved us? 
After, and they answer God, how hast thou loved us? And all through this book, you'll find that the theme that ties this book together is a series of seven responses on the part of the people to the challenges of God. Five, seven times you'll find them saying this. How? How come? How does this happen? Prove it. How? Uh, we'll run through them, and you can see how this ties together. But this reveals the state of this people's heart. Here is an outgoing God, and God is always this way, pouring out love. But here is a calloused people who have become so indifferent and so unresponsive to God that in, in perfect sincerity they can say, well, we don't see this. What do you mean? Why do you say these things to us? How do you... Uh, 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 how do you see uh, what you charge us with as taking place in us? And uh, throughout the book, this is the theme. Now, God's answer to their question, how have you loved us, is to remind them that he loved them even back in the beginning of the race with Jacob and Esau. And he says, take a look at the whole race, at your whole race. Here's Jacob and Esau. And Esau's history has been one of continual disturbance and disaster and uh, uh, and trouble because he says I have loved Jacob but I've hated Esau and if you want to see my love compare it with the one who has not been enjoying my love look at Esau and see how different his story is from yours and yet Jacob and Esau were twin brothers is not Jacob is not Esau Jacob's brother says the Lord yet I have loved Jacob but I have hated Esau. Now, you don't get the explanation of that, which troubles many people, till you come into the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where we're told that Esau was a despiser of his birthright and uh, therefore was one who had no concern and no value for spiritual matters. He treated God with utter indifference. He regarded the things that God thought highly of as being nothing but tri trivial things. And he treated them that way. And it's because of Esau's attitude that God says, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. If you had known these two men, you would have loved Esau and hated Jacob. Because Jacob was the, was the schemer, the uh, big-time operator, the uh, uh, supplanter, the usurper, the untrustworthy rascal. Esau was the big uh, outdoor man, uh, hearty, open, frank, uh, strong, boasting in his exploits as a hunter and as a, uh, as a man of the outdoors. And of the two in the scriptures, he appears to be much the better man. But God says, I love Jacob because in the heart of Jacob is a hunger after deeper things than the soup, than the surface of life. And Jacob wants something more. And that always draws out the heart of God. Now, this was characteristic of the nation as well. And God goes on to charge them with certain problems. And each time their response is, well, we don't see this. Look, for instance, at verse uh, 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, 
who despise my name. That's God's charge. You despise my name. Well, they said, how? How have we despised your name? We don't see this. What do you mean? And the Lord's answer is, by offering polluted food upon my altar. That is, your, your, atti- your attitude toward me, your actions toward me, are shoddy. You're, you're content to give me just the, the trash, the defiled things. And they pursue it further, and they said, uh, how have we polluted it? And again, God makes it very clear. Whenever you ask God how, he'll tell you. They, they say, or God says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that no evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is that no evil? Present, go and present them to the governor. See if you get by with that, he says. You people that uh, are content to be shoddy about your religious experience, you try living that way in your business life and see if you can get by with it. And yet you say, you're honoring my name. And you're, you're uh, trying to worship me and, and claiming to be my people. And the God of reality, you see, always cuts right through all the excuses and all the, the flim-flam uh, of uh, hypocrisy that we erect and cuts right down to the issue. And this is what the prophet is doing here. He's hit again in uh, some of the charges he lays against them. In verse 10, they were being professional about their worship. In verse uh, 13, they were utterly bored. They said, what a weariness this is. The Lord says to them, what a weariness this is, you say, and you sniff at me, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering, and you're bored by it. There's no excitement. Now, what's wrong? Well, these are always the symptoms of a people who think that God will be content with something less than love. You see, the great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy strength and all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And nothing else will satisfy God. But here is a people who have been surrounded by God's love and the recipients of his grace for centuries, and yet whose hearts have become so blinded and calloused that they cannot see how they're offending him and insulting him with what they do. And the reason they have done so is because their own love for him has died. And the death of love always reflects itself in a calloused attitude. And this is what you see here. In the, as you read on in the chapter, they were being hypocritical. God lays that charge against them in chapter 2 and in verses 8 through 10 uh, that they were actually malignant. Their influence was turning others astray. You have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You're telling them things that are wrong because you don't even know they're wrong. This is the horrible aspect of this kind of living. And then he charges them with uh, having, uh, having failed in, in uh, their moral standards. Uh, they had begun to intermarry with the tribes around them and forget that God had called them to be a special people. And then in verse 13, divorce was prevalent throughout the land. 
This again you do, God says. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, and you ask, why does he not accept this? And the answer is, because the Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life? And what does he desire? Godly offspring. So take heed to yourselves and let none be faithless to the wife of his youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Sounds modern, doesn't it? Malachi had to minister among a people in which divorce was widespread and was being tolerated. And more than that, he was ministering in a society in which moral confusion and moral cynicism was rampant. Look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And they're amazed at this charge. They say, what do you mean? How have we wearied him? And the answer comes right from the shoulder. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Just this week, I picked up an article that pointed out that obscenity, pornography, the blazoning abroad of toilet language, filthy words, and so on, is good for our society, was the theme of the article. That these things are good to have out in the open. That it's wrong to suppress this kind of language or to censor it in our literature. I picked up another article that said that discipline and parental uh, discipline in the home of children is is an evil thing. That this does harm to children, destroys their incentive, takes away their ability to develop properly. And all this reflects, you see, the moral confusion of our day. Now, this is always the case when people substitute anything less than a fervent love for God. When they think that ritual and religious hocus-pocus is going to make the heart of the eternal satisfied. There comes moral confusion and moral cynicism. For they were asking, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of judgment? Why, anybody can get by with anything. What do you mean? There aren't any standards. Everything's relative. There's no God of justice saying this is right and this is wrong. Now, you see, we think all this is new, don't we? But even 400 years before Christ, it was already old. Then comes the great prophecy we've already looked at. As the prophet lifted his eyes, he saw that the heart of this people was so callous, so hardened, that they could not even be awakened by these charges from God. They, they were utterly unaware that these things were happening. They had nothing to measure them against. And so, looking across what turned out to be 400 years, the prophet says, well, the Lord's going to take care of this. He'll send one to you who will wake you up. He'll send one who will tell you the truth, who will be a refiner's fire, who will just burn through all the hypocrisy and all the outward perfunctoriness of your religion and cut right through to the very heart of it. And he'll be like fuller's soap to those who are willing. He'll wash them. He'll cleanse them. He'll set things right. 
He'll have, and you can recognize him because he'll have a messenger that will go before him to prepare the way. And then he'll suddenly come to his temple. And all this is so beautifully fulfilled, as you know, in the New Testament. Then comes another series of charges to the people where the Lord asks them again about their life. He says to them, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And the people say, well, how shall we return? We haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) What do you mean, return? Why, we're here. Here we are serving you in your temple. We're bringing the proper things, the sacrifices and the offering. We're going through the ritual, just as you outlined it. What do you mean, return to you? How can we return? Indicating the utter blindness of their heart. They didn't realize that though the outward form is right, the heart is far from God. And then uh, he said, you're robbing me, God said. But they said, well, how are we robbing you? And God's answer, in tithes and offerings, you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. You're using your the monies that I have blessed you with and given to you for your own purposes. And bring the, the tithes into the storehouse, he says, that there may be food in my house. Now that verse is oftentimes wrenched from this Old Testament scripture and applied to the church and used to establish a legalistic pattern of bringing in all the offerings into the church. That's the storehouse. Well, that's a distortion of this verse. This is a verse addressed to Israel within the the limits of the uh, of the uh, system under which uh, Israel lived in the Old Testament, including the tithes, uh, including the uh, necessity to bring tithes and offerings in. And yet the principle is exactly true of the church, uh, that we should take all that God has blessed us with and use it for our own advancement. That's the charge against it. And God says, when you do that, you're robbing me. You're robbing me of my right to use you to advance my cause. That's what man is here for. And it's quite possible, of course, for all of us as Christians to be quite perfunctory about fulfilling our religious obligations within a church. And yet to live our lives with... uh, aiming at fulfilling nothing but our own selfish, self-centered goals, and even achieve them and rise to the very top. But someday we'll have to stand before the one who says, all my life you've robbed me of my right to be myself in you. That's why the appeal of of the New Testament is, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. Because that's what we're here for. That's what we're called for. And anything less is robbing him of his inheritance in the saints. Well, he goes on to charge with other things. Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? And the answer comes, you've said it's vain to serve God. What's the use of serving God? He doesn't do anything for me. I don't get anything out of this. What's the good of keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why, I've been trying to serve God. I've been a Christian now for ten years and I haven't gotten anything out of it. Which betrays the philosophy that God exists for me, not me for him. And it's really blasphemy. 
And yet here's a people so calloused, so hardened, that they don't recognize the rightness of the charge. Now that's one side of the picture. Now beginning with verse 16 of chapter 3, you get a wonderful little spotlight turned on a remnant, a group within, who were pleasing God. Thank God these are always there. And God's spotlight, searchlight, can always find them. And they're described this way. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord heeded and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and thought on his name. And this beautiful verse comes in. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Notice the two things that mark those who are faithful in the day of apostasy. Those who stand fast. Two principles. They spoke with one another first. That's right in line with the message of this morning. It doesn't mean they just talked to each other. It means they opened up to each other. They shared with one another. They encouraged each other. They confessed their weak points and prayed for one another. And they let others see what they were like and spoke with one another. Ah, yes, but that was on the horizontal level that they found resource. But there was also the vertical level. They thought on his name. And that's always the great resource of the people of God. The name of God stands for all that he is, just as your name stands for all that you are. You sign a check, and all that you are is laid on the line to the amount of that check because of your name. And they thought on his name. Now, every week, there isn't a week goes by, but what there doesn't cross my desk, a flood of propaganda telling me what's wrong with the church and analyzing its weakness and presenting something, some gadget or gimmick that will take all the blood and sweat and tears out of living as a Christian today and make everything work out right. And we're being assaulted today with solutions to pro the problem, the weakness of the church that are not solutions at all. Here's the answer to the weakness of the church. To think upon his name. To reckon on the resources of God. You can take away all the props of the church. Its buildings. Its visual aids. Its committees. Its programs. And everything else. And all the gadgets. And all the gimmicks. And if you have a people who have learned to reckon on the name of God. You haven't lost a thing. And that's what this age needs to hear again. Just this last week, I was told within the course of these last seven days that uh, one of the things the church desperately needs is new electronic gadgets. That if we would introduce some of the electronic marbles that are put available to businesses and so on today, we could actually take on electronically the job of preaching the gospel and spreading it abroad and in just a sh few short years, this article suggested, the whole world could be converted. Our job would be done <laughs> electronically. 
I also heard a report that someone is suggesting that what we need to do is take the, the words of the hymns and put them to rock and roll music. And that's what the church needs. <laughs> I don't say amen to that. <laughs> Some of you are, aren't you? That that's what the church needs. We need to capture the spirit of the age and move with it and get modern and uh, bring in all these things. And that's the thing, the missing element. Oh, uh, no. No, God is the missing element. We're to think on his name, reckon on his power. But the church is never so strong as when utter weakness, it casts itself back upon the resources of God and moves in dependence upon him. And now the prophet lifts up his eye again and he sees the day that's coming. Not only the day 400 years later when the Lord Jesus would stand on earth, but beyond that, across the great reaches of the centuries, beyond our own day, to the second coming of Christ, when all God's program would be fulfilled. For behold, the day comes, he says, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day uh, that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now that's one uh, cause with two effects. The Son of Righteousness shall arise. And toward those who refuse him, there's a burning. But toward those who receive him, there's a healing. The same one. And you shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And you recall it was that last verse that was troublesome to the disciples. And they said to the Lord, how is it that the prophecy says that Elijah the prophet must first come? And the Lord's answer was, Elijah has already come. And you didn't recognize it. And they, he saw the look of astonishment on their faces. And he made it clear that it was John the Baptist, he said, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And fulfilled his ministry, who was the fulfillment of this in the initial coming. And then he put it in such a way that he, he left the clear inference that Elijah the prophet would still come before the second coming. And many identify the two witnesses in the, the 11th chapter of Revelation as one being Elijah and the other Moses. Now how true this is, I'll leave it to you to decide. But at least there's this suggestion here that in some remarkable way, God intends to supply a ministry like Elijah the prophet before the second return of the Lord Jesus. Now, notice this last thing. It's not without considerable suggestiveness that after all the literature of the Old Testament, the last word of the Old Testament is curse. It's not, it's not a definite statement that it will happen. It's a warning. 
This prophecy begins, Behold, I have loved you, says the Lord. And it ends with the warning that if the message of love is not received, the result is a curse. Now compare that with, that with the last word of the New Testament. Do you know what it is? Well, leaving out the final salutation, it's the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Even so come, Lord Jesus. That's God's answer to the curse, isn't it? The curse of the law. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And thus the full answer of God to the to that which comes upon a heart that turns from him is grace and love that pours out even more blessing and brings us into the light the knowledge of Christ, that all the blessing that's in that's wrapped up in that name shall be ours. And that's why uh, the task of a Christian is to learn to think upon his name. Well, that brings us to the close of the Old Testament. Now we'll begin with that silent period next week. Shall we stand together? We'll be dismissed in the word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that reminds us of the evil of being perfunctory about faith, of being shoddy and hypocritical and bored with our faith. Lord, help us to know that thy heart of love is never content except that it obtain a response of love from us. May we love the Lord our God. May we love him in purity. May we love thee in, uh, in joy and in sincerity. And uh, remember that thy name is our adequate resource in every situation. And live like that today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.